I want to start today with um, a little um, name that tune. Okay, so this is for those of you my age and older. Um, my wife, who's two years younger than I am, didn't know this song, and I'm hoping that some of you can uh, can maybe maybe help us with this one. Okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to just start it, and I'm going to see firsthand up gets a treasure from the treasure box, okay? <laughs> That's a big treasure. Alright, here, here we go. It's not the normal song you hear in church. We're not trying to be relevant, but I think it, you'll, you'll see how it fits the theme, okay? First hand up, I'm watching. Hey Darcy, rock the boat. Here we go. Am I on here? Yeah, I'm here. How many of you know this? You can raise your hand. Does this kind of take you back to when you're in high school? We can play the rest of it, but I'm not sure it would be entirely profitable. Um, Dirk, you probably have not heard that song. No, Dirk grew up in Germany. Whenever we do these like American culture things, she's always like way out in left left field. But but that's that's okay. Um, don't rock the boat. Um, who wrote that song? Does anyone know who wrote the song? Yeah, you got it. Look at this. Yeah, yeah, those guys right there. Those cool guys. The Hughes Corporation wrote the song, 1973. By 1974, it was played in the New York discos, and it was top of the charts in July of 1974. I remember hearing the song. It gives a snippet of a relationship um, using the imagery of a boat ride. Initially, the relationship's going really well. Ever since our voyage began, your touch has thrilled me like the rush of wind. Your arms have held me safe from a rolling sea. There's always been a quiet place to harbor you and me. Our love is like a ship on the ocean. We've been sailing with a cargo full of love and devotion. And yet, like all songs, relationships and songs, hit some difficult, tumultuous times. And that's the refrain, I'd like to know where you got the notion. I'd like to know where you got the notion to rock the boat. Don't rock the boat, baby. Rock the boat. Don't tip the boat over. So you can almost see it's a, the relationship's going well. They say, no, 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 you, but you're shaking it up. And I, I want to know where you got that. I don't want it to be shaken up. So please, don't tip the boat. Don't tip our relationship. Let's restore this relationship back to where it was, like a ship on the ocean. My message this morning is entitled, Rocking the Boat. From Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through chapter 3, verse 6. If you haven't done so, you can open your Bibles there. We see Jesus doing this in the text. He is rocking the boat. He's upsetting the religious establishment of the day, and those in the boat are not happy. If the Pharisees, if the Hughes Corporation existed in the days of the Pharisees, maybe the Pharisees would have sung this song to Jesus. We'd like to know, Jesus, where you got the notion. We like to know where you got the notion to rock the boat. Don't rock the boat. Don't tip this boat over. And, and, and a, lot of, a lot of reasons for this, because the Pharisees had a good thing going on. They were the head of the religious establishment of the day, and Jesus was coming in and rocking it. Now, initially in the ministry of Jesus, things were going well. People adored Him. They were amazed at Him, following after Him. 
the crowds were bringing all who were ill, and Jesus was healing them. Maybe you remember my message a few weeks back. is entitled, The Honeymoon. Right, That honeymoon stage in the life of Jesus when everything was going well, but it lasted for a chapter in Mark's Gospel because they start to go down from there. And in chapter 2, we see that things taking a turn for the worse in this relationship between Jesus and the religious establishment of the day, which is actually better because we're on Jesus' side, not on the Pharisee's side, but their relationship began to get a bit rocky. Two stories. We started with the paralytic healed. Jesus said, My son, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees accused Him of blasphemy. And then Jesus called Matthew or Levi, this tax collector. And Jesus then went and had a Levi party, was eating with the sinners, and Jesus didn't like, the Pharisees didn't like His activity. So they were opposed to Jesus. And we're going to see today this pressure just continuing to mount. This hostility as Jesus continues to rock the boat. We have three stories we're going to look at today. Each of them hits some deeply ingrained religious establishment of the people. And uh, in each of them, Jesus then reveals who He is, and the Pharisees hate Him for it. In fact, that's where we're headed. We're headed to chapter 3, verse 6. We just need to know where we're going. Look at this. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against Him as to how they might destroy Him. It's really a shocking verse, if you will. Shocking because the Herodians and the Pharisees were far from friends. They were on opposite sides of the religious spectrum. They were on opposite sides of the political spectrum. So you can think today, think Democrat and Republican. But, but don't think the, the mild Democrat and Republican. Think about the extremes. The conservative Republican and the liberal Democrat. That's who these Pharisees and Herodians were. They were as far away as you could get from any of them. The Pharisees were conservative They're from this conservative sect of Judaism which sought to worship God from their traditions. Very strict in their religious observances. Separatistic in their practices. And they were quick to separate from anyone who didn't agree with themselves. The Herodians, on the other hand, were politically minded people who bent some of their religious um, thoughts and beliefs so as to submit themselves to the Herods and the government so as to obtain peace for themselves. Their modus operandi was peace, The Pharisees' modus operandi was purity. And there was long distance between them. Opposite sides, the political and religious spectrum. Couldn't unite on anything until Jesus came along. And opposing Jesus, they did together as to how they might oppose Him. Jesus was rocking the boat. The religious leaders didn't like it. The Pharisees didn't like Him confronting the religion. And the Herodians saw enough on the horizon that there was political turmoil. They didn't like the fact that he was causing a political turmoil. And so they united against a common enemy. Now, that's not such an uncommon thing. Whenever there's a common enemy, people will often unite. Enemies will often unite. Um, So like, for instance, the days of the Cold War. Russia was a superpower and communism had to be defeated at all costs. And you had Republicans and Democrats united. Though disunited on domestic issues, when it came to Russia, yes, we've got to deal with them somehow. How they dealt with them may be a little bit different, but the fact that Russia was the the big brother enemy, that was very much there. Russia must be opposed. Or September 11th, when the towers fell down. I mean, this is astonishing. The day after that or two days after that, Democrats, Republicans, you can go on YouTube and see this. I'm not sure if they're quite arm in arm, but they're on Capitol Hill singing, God bless America. Why? Because there's a common enemy. Didn't quite know who that enemy was, 
but they're going to figure it out and we're going to go against that common enemy. It takes something big to unite enemies. And Jesus was big. They perceived Jesus to be a threat to their whole religious system, the whole political fabric of the day. And so how was Jesus rocking the boat? Well, the first one is seen here in verse 18 and following on the issue of fasting. It's my first point. Number one, fasting. John's disciples, verse 18, and the Pharisees were fasting. And they came and said to Him, Why do John's disciples fast and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? The Pharisees were devoted to their fasting twice a week, every Monday and Thursday. From sunup to sundown, they didn't eat anything. Thinking themselves to be righteous in that way as part of the rhythm of life. Saturday was synagogue day. Monday and Thursday were fast day. Synagogue on Saturday. Monday and Thursday fast day. It's what the strictest of the Pharisees did. Just fasting was part of their religion. It's a way that they sought to please the Lord. And typical of the Pharisees, they went way above and beyond what the law demanded of them. The law demanded one day a year for fasting. Do you remember when that was? Anyone? When was the, the one day a year they fasted? One day a year they fasted. Nobody knows. Passover, good guess, because a big climax, but not Passover. But another, another big climax like that. When else would be a big climax in their The Day of Atonement, right, Rich? The, the Day of Atonement was the one day out of the year that they were commanded to fast. Really a day for sorrow for sin, where they thought about their sin and, and thought about the redemption that they needed so bad. But the Pharisees then went way beyond that and said, well, God commanded one day to fast, but we will fast twice a week. We'll fast a hundred days throughout the year. And that's what they did. It was their practice, their religion, their tradition. And they held on to it very firmly. Now it says in verse 18 that John's disciples also fasted. This ought not to surprise us. John was an ascetic which means he was out in the wilderness treating his body severely the way really religious people lived in the days of Jesus. was out there. And these, John's, John's disciples also, if you think about it, were, were disciples formerly of maybe Sadducees or maybe Pharisees or maybe Essenes or Herodians. They, they were people who would come to follow Jesus. So they maybe took along their religious practices to follow John the Baptist. Only their fasting may have been in light of a coming Messiah, perhaps. But they were probably fasting too. The rigors of the religion were very much the same, probably. As you look at the text, you can probably guess that it was a Monday or a Thursday. I'm not putting a lot of weight on that, but I say that because it says in verse 18 that these disciples of John and these disciples of the Pharisees were fasting. That is, they were they were in the midst. They were fasting even at that very moment. But Jesus at that very moment was feasting. If you look back up in uh, verse 16, the scribes of the Pharisees saw that Jesus was eating with the sinners and tax collectors. And Jesus, and they were fasting, and, and their stomachs were empty and his were full, and they wanted to know why his was full and theirs was empty. And that's really the question of verse 18. And typical Jesus. He answers a question with a question. Which, by the way, we'll see in every story. Some confrontation comes up. Some confrontation comes. Jesus will ask a question. They won't have a good answer to the question. But the question sheds light on what the reality is. Jesus said this in verse 19. While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast. 
Can they? I love weddings. Because at weddings, everybody is happy. It's a time of feasting and merrymaking, joy and celebration. A man and woman planning this event for months. All their guests have arrived. All the festivities have been prepared. Everything is there. The table has been set. Now is the time to party. It's the last time you're going to want to institute a feast. Is it a wedding festival? And Jesus is simply saying here, it's totally inappropriate for His disciples to fast because I, the bridegroom, am here. Remember Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. The kingdom was there because Jesus, the King, was there with them. And so likewise here, Jesus is the bridegroom. And He is right there and they can't fast. That would, that would make no sense. Jesus here is revealing slowly who He is. He calls Himself the bridegroom. Now that, that may have some allusions to the fact of the picture of the, the, the body of Christ and the bride of Christ in Ephesians 5. It may have some allusions also to the end of time, Revelation 19, when they have the marriage supper of the Lamb, where Jesus is married to the Lamb and they have the feast there. It may be that. It may not. Maybe it's just a simple illustration. A time of, time of feasting is not a time for fasting. But here's, here's the key thing is you need to know from Jesus' question here in verse 19. Is that the presence of Jesus is capable of changing the entire religious practice of the day. Think about that. Jesus is saying this. While the bridegroom is there, they can't, they can't fast. Jesus is saying this. While I am here, this fasting stuff that you guys do makes no sense at all. Meaning that my presence here changes all of your religious practices. Think about the audacity of that complaint, of that claim. When I'm around, no reason to fast because I'm the life of the party in some sense, he's saying. He's claiming authority. He is rubbing against a long-held tradition of the elders, setting himself above the Jew of the days of the day, setting himself above all the rabbis of the past who wrote the Talmud, from which they get all this fasting requirements. He was rocking the boat. That's not that Jesus was opposed to fasting. He says in verse 19, "The day will come." So, so, long as, uh, so long as they have the bridegroom there with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in that day. When the bridegroom leaves, when I'm gone, fasting is appropriate is what he's saying. But not when I'm here. I, I hope you even see the, the, the largeness of that claim of Jesus setting Himself up above so many religious authorities in that day. And here even we see a little bit of an insight into when fasting is appropriate. Fasting isn't appropriate for times of joy. It's, fasting is appropriate for times of sorrow. That's why the Day of Atonement is a perfect day for the fasting to take place. It's a day of sorrow when they remember their sin. Fasting is for days of repentance. Fasting is for days of difficulty. It's for a day of desperation. We see a couple of illustrations in the Old Testament. I'm sure there are more. I'll pick out two. When Esther... The queen, sovereignly placed there as, as queen. King Ahasuerus, unreally known to himself, understanding all the implications, said, we well, can wipe out all the Jews in this particular day. And Esther, being a Jew, was called by her uncle Mordecai to go in and talk with the king. And she was desperate. And she said, go, Mordecai, you assemble all the Jews 
And for three days and three nights, you have them fast for me when I go into the presence of the king. And I will fast, and also my maidens will fast. And when I go to the king, which is not according to the law, but if I go in, if I perish, I perish. Day of desperation. Great day for fasting. Whenever there's a day, a time of desperation, it's time to fast. When Nineveh was told they're going to be destroyed in 40 days, the king of Nineveh issued a decree saying that everybody should fast and all the beasts. And don't, don't even give the beasts water, anything to drink, but let there be fasting. Let's be covered with sackcloth. Let's call on God earnestly and turn from our wicked ways and maybe God will hear us. Totally appropriate time for fasting when they see their sin and are acknowledging that and confessing that. Fasting before the Lord. There are times today you might lose your job. Those are good days for fasting. When you have a prodigal son who's off pursuing the ways of the world, that's a good day for fasting, seeking the Lord. When your marriage is in shambles, a good way, good day to fast. When you're longing for your spouse to come back, it's a good day for ministry preparation. You're seeking an extraordinary blessing of the Lord or, or guidance from the Lord or, or you don't know what, what to do. You seek the Lord and fast and pray. It's what the early leaders of Acts did. Acts chapter 13, they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, seeking Direction from the Lord, and all God did was launch the missions movement, which lasts till this day. He said, Send out Barnabas and Saul for me for the work that I've set them to do. Now, Jesus didn't oppose fasting. In fact, when Jesus teaches on fasting, he just opposes the way people fast. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount? He said, When you fast, don't put on a gloomy face like the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so as to be noticed by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Pharisees shouldn't have been ignorant of these things. They knew Isaiah 53, 58, which Phil read for us today. It's the same kind of a spirit. Fast rightly from your heart. Don't fast so as to be shown, seen by men. So there's a day where fasting will take place. It's the day when, verse 20, when the bridegroom is taken away, snatched away from them. The word carries the idea of being removed by another against your will. Being taken away, being carried from one place to another. Of course, you know that took place in Jerusalem when Jesus was delivered into the hands of men and when Jesus was rejected by the elders and the chief priests when they condemned Jesus to death and mocked Him and spit on Him and scourged Him and, and killed Him. He said, Jesus said, that day it will be appropriate for you to fast when I'm taken away from you. But when Jesus rose from the dead promising to be with us always, there is a sense where Jesus is, is with us now. The sense where our fasting is entirely different than the fasting of the Pharisaical day. Let's remember that we live in a new day. We live in a day after the death, burial, and resurrection, ascension of Jesus. And by faith in Jesus, our sins are forgiven and washed away. As Paul said in Colossians 2.13, Jesus has forgiven us all our transgressions. Days for our fasting has got to be changed, got to be a little bit. Now, we do live in a fallen world where there is pain and anguish. And I already described ways in which it's appropriate for us to fast. But there has been a a change in things. The modus operandi of today is a little bit different than it was in the days of the Pharisees. And that's coming in verses 21 and 22. No one sews a patch of unshrocked cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it 
and the new from the old, and a worse tear results. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, and the skins as well. And one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. It's a picture, simple to understand. You put new patches on new garments and old patches on old garments. You put new wine in new wineskins and old wine in old wineskins. And you seek to match those and you're going to rip the garment or, or burst the skins. Just the way it's going to work. And the interpretation is a little bit more difficult, but I think Jesus is just getting here. There's a change taking place. You can't, I'm in and I'm something new and you can't put me into these old systems of religion. Because when I have come, as Jesus said, I'm bringing the new covenant, bringing a new way to God through me, through faith in me. And when it comes to fasting, you don't have to fast the way the Pharisees fast. You don't have to be ascetic. Meaning, you don't have to be just out there on the rugged place like John the Baptist. You don't have to just self-denial yourself just intentionally for the display of people all the time. Now, there are times to be self, to deny yourself the world, flesh, and the devil. But to spend a life of sorrow and sadness and serving Christ really misses the point today. We serve a risen Savior. It gives us joy and hope. Now, there are sorrows for sure. This world has reasons to fast. We have reasons to fast, but those ought to be subplots of our lives. The main plot of our life ought to be Jesus Christ risen from the dead and the joy that we know of our sins forgiven. That's where we ought to live. And I think it's different than those of the Old Covenant. And Jesus says, you can't mix my ways and mix the ways with the Old Covenant. A worse terror result. Wine will spill all over the place. And Jesus, in saying these things, even again is, is boldly revealing who He is. I'm the one who can change all your religious systems. He's rocking the boat rocking against their long-standing religious traditions with fasting. And then comes the issue of the Sabbath. Verse 23. So we've seen the fasting and now we see Sabbath. Verse 23. And it happened that as He was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, His disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. It appears at this point there's a break in the story. It was the Sabbath. It was Saturday at this point, And they're, they're walking from one place to another. This was Jesus' way He did ministry. His classroom wasn't a classroom with a chalkboard and chairs and desks. His classroom was the open air as He walked from city to city. It's what Jesus did. He was move, teaching them in this roving classroom as they saw the, the birds of the sky or the, the lilies of the field. Or they saw people needing help. Or they need people to teach. He just walked along the way. That's where Jesus taught out in the open air. They came upon the grain fields. His disciples were hungry. And so they picked a few heads of grain, put them in their hand, kind of rubbed them out like that, blew the chaff away, and then eat. Eat the grain. You guys ever eaten raw wheat before? You kids, have you done that? Yeah, some a little bit. Tastes really good, right? Doesn't taste so good. No, it doesn't. But that's what... Flour is made of. That's what make bread is made of. And that eventually will help. So it gave them a little bit of a nourishment to, to go on their way. It's not the most appetizing foods, but it's sufficient to satisfy the hunger pangs. This was totally legal according to Old Testament law. Deuteronomy 23.25 says, When you enter your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not wield a sickle in your neighbor's standing grain. In other words, if you're hungry, walking along the neighbor's field, 
they have left some grain up for you. They didn't harvest the corners. And so she walk in and say, I'm a little hungry. You can take anything. It's totally, totally fair, totally legal. Take it and eat it as you would like. Only you just couldn't pull your sickle out, pull your bag out and say, hey, I want to take this grain here. I'm going to put it in here and put this in here and stack it up for a later day. I'm going to grind it home when I get home and make some wheat out. You can't do that. It's like uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was at the Desiring God National Pastors Conference. They had an information table with this big bowl. I'm guessing it's about this big and pretty flat. And it had breath mints in it. It had peppermint mints and it had some Lifesaver mints, which are wonderful. And, and if you, anybody who walked by could just take one and pop it in their mouth. And certainly some people needed them. And so it was good for the, the whole uh, camaraderie of everybody. You could take some and eat them. But they didn't want you to open your bag and say, oh, <laughs> you know, and start putting all this candy in there for later. I got kids. I got a lot of kids. I got all these kids at church. I got a treasure box I need to fill. You won't mind, will you? That's not what it's about. It's, it's, it's there to take and to eat right on the premises, right there. And so likewise with standing grain, the law said you could eat. You're just not supposed to store it up for later use. Everything the disciples did, totally legal according to the law. Yet, the Pharisees found fault with them because it was on the Sabbath. Verse 24. Look, the Pharisees were saying to Jesus, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? The law spoke nothing about prohibiting these things in the Sabbath. The law only spoke about permitting these things on any day, right? The, the picking of grain. But according to Pharisaical tradition, this was not allowed. The Pharisees had developed this entire code of ethic of what you could do and what you couldn't do on the Sabbath. Because they reasoned this way, is the command to cease and rest from your labor is pretty general Let's put some foot leather to that. Let's put some shoe leather to that. And as they sought to, they came up with all these rules guided by 39 activities that were prohibited on the Sabbath. On the Sabbath, you couldn't plant. On the Sabbath, you couldn't plow. On the Sabbath, you couldn't reap or gather or extract or winnow. On the Sabbath, you couldn't sort or grind or sift or knead, or cook. You couldn't shear, or launder, or beat, or dye, or spin things like wool. You couldn't warp, or make loops, or weave, or separate threads. You couldn't tie or untie. You couldn't sew or tear. You couldn't trap or slaughter. No cutting, no curing, no smoothing, no scoring, no cutting, no writing, no erasing. You couldn't build, you couldn't demolish, you couldn't ignite a fire, you couldn't extinguish a fire. You couldn't apply the finishing touch on anything, or transfer between domains. That was a day of rest, and they sure made it clear of what it means to rest on that day. The disciples picked their heads of grain. They were reaping and gathering and extracting and winnowing. I count up just four of those prohibitions of the things that they were doing, and definitely against Pharisaical instructions. The Pharisees, being sticklers about the law they kept themselves, and perhaps even more so being sticklers about what other people did on the law so as to keep the law for them. They were the sin police. Ah, you can't do that. Why are they breaking the Sabbath this way? Exactly, David, you're right. Jesus had a choice. He could succumb to their teaching and say, hey guys, guys, how about you? let's just not, not pick that. We're okay. Or he could rock the boat. And what did Jesus do? He rocked the boat. And they're singing, don't tip the boat over, don't rock the boat, baby. He's rocking the boat. Here's what he said, verse 25. Appealing to Scripture. 
Have you never read what David did when he was in need and he and his companions became hungry and how he entered the house of God at the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the consecrated bread which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests? And he also gave it to those who were with him? There's the question. Have you not heard this? Have you not read this? You know, Jesus often did that to slam them. Of course they'd read it, but they didn't understand it. They didn't take it into the implication about everything's happening here. Jesus goes back, 1 Samuel 21. He says, you remember when David was on the run and, and fleeing from Saul who was seeking to kill him and he, he left in haste, didn't have time to prepare and so he, he entered the, the tabernacle which was at Nob at the time and he, he needed some things. In discussion with the priest about getting some supplies for him and for the few men who were with him so as to help their escape further from King Saul. Here was David and his friends. They were in need. And the priest said to David, and I quote 1 Samuel 21.4, There is no ordinary bread on hand, but there is the consecrated bread. Now, the consecrated bread is the bread that the priests prepared each week and placed on the table of showbread. So I remember there were, were two stacks of six pieces of bread that just sat there all week long. At the end of the week, after worshiping the Lord, then they, the priests and the priests only would eat this bread. I'm not sure if they had a ceremony or where they just kind of ate it with their sandwich. I don't know what they did. But it was only the priests who were to eat the bread. It's very clear from Leviticus 24. But David and his men came into the tabernacle. They were hungry and in need. And the priests gave David and his men the sacred bread to eat. And David said this. Listen, there's a parallel. Jesus said this. There's a parallel of what happened here. David and his men did an unlawful thing at the time of their need. But nowhere in the Scriptures ever condemned them for doing so. In fact, the need justified the action. They were hungry. The priest was merciful. And so even did what was contrary to the law. The Bible didn't speak against them. And Jesus said this. My men have a need as well. They're hungry. And certainly there's a higher law than the Sabbath. Certainly we're able to pick a little bit of grain to help our stomachs so we might go out and serve people. Jesus could have quoted Hosea 6.6. 6, I desire mercy and compassion, not sacrifice. See, and this would be a merciful act. But they didn't. I don't think they bought that. They were so focused on the law they couldn't, they couldn't see and understand mercy. By the way, that is the way people act. If you're so focused on the law, you won't understand mercy. Mercy would back off and see the law in its perspective. Then the men, then Jesus set before them the key principle of all Sabbath keeping. Here it is. Verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, it's not that God created the Sabbath and said, oh, isn't this a wonderful day? Um, Let's create people so as to make this day even more wonderful. And, and we'll, we'll create these people and they'll like rest on that day and not do anything. And we'll make that day just such a wonderful day because the Sabbath is of all great importance. Won't this be great, Son and Holy Spirit? Won't this be great to have people keep the Sabbath? That, that's not how it was. Is that God created man and He said, oh, man is weak. Man needs rest. And so God ordained the Sabbath for man so as to be able to work the other six days of the week. See, we're not robots. We can't work 24 hours a day. We need our our daily rest. But not only do we need our daily rest, we need our weekly rest. So God has made us a day and seven to rest so as to be able to have strength to work the other six days. 
And those who work seven days in a row or beyond, I know some of you have before, some of you do regularly, when you do it, it begins to take a toll on your body. A little bit like the one who stays up all night doing a term paper. It's okay, you can get through it for a time, but there's going to be a rest later on that you're going to need. And someone who presses on beyond seven days, eight days, twelve days, fifteen days, or what was it one time? Jerry, thirty-two days or something. There's going to be a day where you've got to recoup and you've got to, you've got to break from that. And you've got to, that's what the Sabbath is for. The Sabbath is a help. A Sabbath ought to be, as Isaiah 58 says, a delight to us. It ought to be the day where we go, and we rest that we might run. But you've got to have that rest so that you can run. The Sabbath was made to help men. And then verse 28 is the kicker. The Son of Man, oh, by the way, just even that's why the, the that's why the Pharisees missed it all because they had switched those. They thought that we, we need to serve the Sabbath where really the Sabbath ought to serve us. The Sabbath is there to help us, refreshen us, and strengthen us. And then he throws in this kicker, verse 28, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. In other words, Jesus says this, all your Sabbath laws, they bow to me. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I make the rules for Sabbath keeping. I make the rules for Sabbath breaking. When we have a need, we can eat a little grain. That's okay on the Sabbath. And since I'm Lord of the Sabbath, I'm saying it's okay. But they said it wasn't okay. But Jesus, again, showing who He is. He is called the Son of Man. Allusions to Daniel chapter 7. It speaks about just His messianic power. I am Lord of the Sabbath. And I will stand against hundreds of years of tradition. I will stand against the Talmud. I will stand against all the rabbis who came up with all these rules. And in fact, uh, I read even this week, there was a guy who studied all these laws, this rabbi who studied for like two years or seven years, I forget the years, but for years he studied all these laws and become an expert in the Sabbath laws. Like, he missed it. And Jesus said, I'm an expert over him because I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I say what goes and what doesn't go. And they did not like it. They did not like the way Jesus was rocking the boat. But that's the whole point of this passage. That Jesus is rubbing against them and they're not liking it. Well, let's turn our attention here to the last event found in verses 3 through 5. We've seen fasting, we've seen Sabbath, and now we see Sabbath again. It's my third point, Sabbath. We read in verse 1, He entered into the synagogue and a man was there whose hand was withered may have been the same day or may have been another day as the NIV seems to indicate. We don't know. But we know he's entering the synagogue, probably Capernaum. There's a man in the synagogue with a withered hand. Now Luke being the physician observes it was his right hand. I don't know what withered meant, but it probably meant that he couldn't use his hand. If you can't use your right hand, there's lots of things you couldn't do. Right, kids? Can you think of some things you can't do if you can't have your right hand? What do you got, Ethan? You can't what? What you say, Ethan? I can't. Play sports. It's kind of hard. Right? It's kind of hard to throw the ball. I mean, there are some exceptions, though. Right? Because some people who learn how to do that. Yes, Mc... oh, You can't play on the Wii. That's right. It's a little harder on the right-hand game control. That'd be a bummer right? if you can't play on the Wii. What else can't you do without a hand? Stephanie? You can't write very well. Well, you learn to write with your other hand. Other ideas? Things you can't do? Yes, we got Gabe. You can't carry anything with a hand. Maybe you can kind of put it here, but you can't really carry anything. You can't pick up anything, right? You can't tie your shoes. You can't pull up your trousers. You can't button your shirts, right? What, you got one, Grant? Yeah, yeah. They were more of a right-hand society back then. 
She couldn't, he couldn't do anything. And so he was, he was a man who was very... Yeah, Jared, you got another one? It's harder to eat. Yep, you have to learn to eat with your left hand. Well, we read what's happening in verse 2. Here comes this guy, withered hand. Verse 2, they were watching him. They, meaning the Pharisees and, and other religious leaders, watching him to see if he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Remarkable verse. Think about this. There was no doubt that Jesus could heal. That, that wasn't even on the question. It didn't say they're watching to see if He might heal them. He might heal them. Like, can He? Can He not? He said He forgives sins, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to heal this man with a withered hand. That wasn't the question of the table. That was all assumed. They knew that He could heal the man. They knew that He could heal the paralytic. They knew all these demon-possessed people. That wasn't on the table. The table, question on the table was this. Is He going to do it today on the Sabbath so that then we can accuse Him? And you can just see the, the hatred of the people stirring up within them, intent upon discovering anything that Jesus would do such a thing because they could accuse Jesus of being a Sabbath breaker, right? Of working on the Sabbath. And Jesus again had a choice. So you let it pass. Tell the man to come back tomorrow when Jesus knew there'd be no problem. Wouldn't cause a controversy or Jesus could rock the boat. What'd he do? He rocked the boat. He said to the man, verse 3, Get up and come forward. And then here's his question. He asked to them, Is it lawful to do good or do harm on the Sabbath? To save a life or to kill? Jesus brings a man in front of everyone. And Jesus asked a clarifying question, just like in chapter 2, verse 19. While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? Or verse 25 of chapter 2. Have you not read what David did when he was in need and he and his companions became hungry? How he entered the tabernacle and took the showbread. It's only good for the priests, right? And here's the question again. Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? I trust you see the irony here. Jesus is among them doing good things. And he's trying to, they're trying to get Him on a technicality. A technicality of the law. And I say, that's what legalism does. Legalism will try to catch people on just the smallest minutia of the law and miss the fact that He's going to change this man's life. Give him a right hand that, that can pick up things, that can tie, that can hold, that can carry. Totally transform this guy's life. Totally help this man's life. And yet they're angry at him. Kind of shows their whole their whole preference about missing the purpose of the Sabbath. See, God instituted the Sabbath for our benefit, for our good, so that we might gain our strength, help us to work. Tim Keller said it great. He said this: the Sabbath is about restoring the diminished. Fundamentally, this is what the Sabbath is about. It's about replenishing the drained. It's about repairing the bro- the broken. To heal the man's shriveled hand is to do exactly what the Sabbath is all about. Yet because the leaders are so concerned the Sabbath regulations be observed, they don't want Jesus to heal this man. An incredible example of missing the forest for the trees. Their hearts are shriveled as the man's hand. <laughs> it's a great view. Their heart is as shriveled as the man's hand. And so there was silence. They didn't answer his question. It says at the end of verse 4, they kept silent. And Jesus, verse 5, after looking around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart. 
this is really the, the heart of these three stories, is that they all show the hardness of these Pharisees' hearts. Jesus is bringing joy to the disciples, so there's no longer need to fast in His presence, and the, and the Pharisees say, no, we want to be gloomy instead. And Jesus gets a, a little bit of, has His disciples eat a little bit of granola along the way, and they said, no, I want them to go hungry. And now a man with a withered hand going to change his life. The Pharisees couldn't see the good that he was doing. They're ready to accuse Jesus. And it's rightly so that Jesus was angry. Rightly so, Jesus was angry at their hardness of their heart. Verse 5. Our fighter verse this week says, The Lord is merciful and gracious and... Who knows the next one? Slow to anger. Right? That's the one I'm looking for. Merciful and gracious and slow to anger. God is slow to anger. And Jesus also is slow to anger. But when time after time after time after time after time after time of resisting Him with a paralytic and forgiveness of sins, resisting Him when He's going to the needy who need a physician, resisting Him when His disciples are just taking a little bit of food along the way, resisting Him when He's feasting, He just had enough. It's kind of like the time has run out. He is angry with a righteous anger, every bit of righteous anger, because they had not understood God's heart. God, God desires mercy and not sacrifice. He's more concerned with the well-being of people than He is in keeping a religious code of ethics. And aren't you glad? Are you glad about that? That God's more concerned with people than He is with keeping a, a particular code of ethics? And that's why God calls us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's why God calls us to love our neighbor as herself. That's why the overriding characteristic of our church ought to be love. Love for people. Yes, God's Word. Yes, doctrine. Yes, emphasis upon the Bible. But let those things work themselves out in love, not in all the ways and all the things that we have to do to cross our eyes and dot our teeth so we please with God, so God will be pleased with us. In fact, to do that even misses what Christianity is all about. There, there are many people who think that, that what they need to do is just do all these, all these good things, all the, all the righteous things, and they, they measure up, right? And, and as long as I, I fast on these days, as long as I read my Bible on this day, and as long as I go to church on this day, and as long as I do my family prayers on this day, and as long as I do this and that and that and that and that and that, as long as I serve in the nursery my time, as long as I whatever, do all these things, then God is going to be really happy with me, and I'm going to be accepted in His sight. Isn't that going to be good? That is not Christianity. I was just talking even on the phone with someone this week who Stephen asked the question, what? Um, how is it that you go to heaven? And the response you always get is what? Just be a good person. It's wrong answer. It's not all about just being a good person. You know, these religious Pharisees, I mean, religion was everything to them. They believed that they had the key of getting right to God. <laughs> it's amazing. God was right before them. And they missed it. And even they missed it. This miracle when Jesus says, stretch out your hand. And He stretched it out. And His hand was restored. There was a pure revelation that it was God Himself who was right there in the midst. They merely needed to come to God by faith and believe in Jesus. And what did they do? They went to destroy God instead. They didn't realize that 
You don't need to do anything to get to God. You just need to respond to Jesus. But these Pharisees thought their obedience to the law was the key to pleasing God and be accepted by Him. And I just say, lest we, lest we go too quickly and say, poo-poo, look at those Pharisees. Look at how bad they were. Realize there's a Pharisaical dimension in all of our hearts as well. The tendency of our hearts is to, to think that God will look down on our obedience and will accept us because we're good. God will accept us because of all the great things that we did. All the great things that we do for Him. All the great ways that we serve Him. That's not the Gospel. That's, that's bad news, by the way. That is not good news. Good news says that God has brought the Gospel of His Son. Jesus Christ has died for us. We merely look to Him and all our sins are wiped away. And has it changed us? Yeah, it changed us. And do we serve and help and give ourselves and spend to be spent? Yes, we we do those things. But they're all in response. They're all because we are secure in the love of God. We are accepted by faith in Jesus. God is abounding in steadfast love to Him. Therefore, we respond in love. And it changes, here's what it is, it changes the flavor of our law keeping. The law is still important to us because the law shows us how God wants us to serve Him. And it gives us a, a dynamic of how to, how to serve the needy and how to help the hungry and how to give to the disadvantaged. But, but no longer do we need to maintain this letter of the law in order to get to God. Rather, God shows us of how the, 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 what He likes and what He delights in it so we can apply the spirit of the law in every circumstance. Let me just ask you this. Let me just tell you this. How about if you apply in every circumstance, wherever you live, that just say, what is the loving thing to do? What is the loving thing to do? And my guess is, whatever, 999 times out of 1,000, you'll do exactly what the law says when you do the loving things. But you do it with the right spirit, the right heart there that will guide you in that way. And these Pharisees and Sadducees missed it and hated Jesus. And I say at Rock Valley Bible Church, let's not be like that. Let's understand God's grace to us and love and extend grace to others and see God by the power of His Spirit change people in the conformity of His Son. Right? You want that? what I want. Let's pray. Fathers, we even see the hearts of these Pharisees just be revealed as to be those who were against you, who hated you because you stood for a, a right way to apply fasting and a right way to apply the Sabbath. I pray that you would help us to apply the religious practices of things we do in a right way. God, ways that love you keeping the spirit of the law rather than the letter of the law which actually ends up contradicting itself and leading to grumpy people. But maybe happy, joy-filled people because we know of Your great love for us. Thank You for Psalm 103. Just our families have been meditating on that. We can bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Let's forget none of His benefits. Who forgives all our iniquities who heals all our diseases, who redeems our life from the pit, who crowns us with steadfast love and loving kindness. Father, we thank You that as a father's compassion on his children, so a father's compassion, so You have compassion upon us. You're mindful that we are but dust. Thank You that as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is Your love towards us. As far as the east is from the west, God, You've taken our transgressions, removed them from us. May we rejoice in those things and respond rightly and may we not resist Jesus who is the One who changes everything. 
changes the fasting laws. He changes the, the Sabbath laws. He is Lord of the Sabbath. He is able to heal. So may we turn, O Lord, to Him. And may we find in Him our total satisfaction. So help us to go from this place to, to loving You and serving You and serving others. Thank You for Your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen.